Bob and I got a text on Friday. I was actually sick on Friday, and then Leonard texted me or us and said, hey, I'm not feeling well, might need to preach. And then um, I got better, but then Saturday it was confirmed that like, hey, Leonard probably is too contagious to come in and preach anyway, even if he's well enough. And so then yesterday I was thinking about what to preach, and then, and then I thought, I'll just look to see what he was going to preach, and then I'll just kind of make the sermon fit into his outline, which I've never done before, because I actually don't like the whole, like, you know, being clever with things like Leonard is. That's just a personal thing. But I, I kept his bullet points, and Leonard, if you're listening, I'm okay with it. I'm just saying that's not me. You know, it's just not what I do. So those aren't my bullet points. Those are his. I made everything fit, but the way that preaching works is it's going to be a completely different sermon. So I don't know if Leonard was actually saving the sermon thinking, great, I already prepared a sermon, and now I can just present this sermon next week. But that's the problem when you get sick. So now I've taken the sermon, and all that work that he's done, he's got to no, He can actually re-preach the same sermon because what's amazing about the Word of God is that it brings different perspectives as different preachers open the Word to you. So it'd actually be kind of cool if he did do that next week just so you can see how a good version of today's sermon will actually go. But what I want to do before we get into 1 Samuel 7, I'm going to back up a little bit and I'm going to kind of set the stage for this in terms of what happened and then I'm going to get into a little bit of verse 6 or chapter 6. But what this is during the period of the judges, and um, it's in the book of First Samuel, and it kind of opens up with Eli, who's the priest, and you know, of course, the birth of Samuel, and he goes into the house of Eli. But Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phineas, and they're 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 not good guys. Um, but um, in any event, the Philistines are have um, come up against Israel, and so. Uh, they're, the Israelites aren't doing too well, and so they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll send the ark of the Lord into the battle, and the, the Philistines are like, oh no, there's a God in our midst, and the, the, the Israel literally says, um, it is with us now. We can, we can win because the ark of the covenant is with us, and what ends up happening is that um, the ark of the covenant gets captured, and um, Right at that time, of course, Hophni and Phinehas, who were with them, die in the battle. Uh, Eli dies upon the hearing of the news. They, the, uh, one of, uh, one of the, uh, there's a, a child that's born right as that's, that happens because the Ark of the Lord is captured by the Philistines, and they name him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And, um, and then the Philistines take the ark into their towns, and then bad things start happening to the towns, like people are getting tumors and all sorts of other weird things that are happening. And so, um, and then it's set up in the, the, the ark set up in the temple of Dagon, and, um, and then they come in, and Dagon's fallen down, and they set him back up, and then he falls down again, and his head's fallen off, and the, 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 the guard that came in, and saw it said, dag on. And anyway, the, so they're like, okay, this isn't good. And so they, send the, they, they decide they're going to send the, the ark away from them because of all these bad things that are happening, saying, well, maybe it's just by chance that all of these things have happened. We'll, we'll kind of hitch these two 
um, two, two cows that have never, you know, they're just like have given birth to calves and we'll hook, hook it to a cart and we'll see if it, if it goes off into the Israelites and we'll know that God has done this. And they put all these like tumors inside, golden tumors inside, on, inside the cart as an offering to God. I'm not sure how you actually, you know, like craft what a tumor looks like, but they figured it out and they, they offer these, these tumors to say, get, get this away from us, God's just afflicting us. And so now we hear of the, the cart coming to the Israelites in um, uh, 1 Samuel verses six, I mean, chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat, uh, their wheat harvest in the valley, in the valley and when they, um, I'm sorry, And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Jeshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden, um, golden, golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on, the, on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned, they returned, um, they returned that day to Elkon. Now, continuing in verse 19. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck, he, he struck 70 men. I'm sorry, excuse me. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the, then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall shall he go up how and to who how I'm sorry and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent these they sent these messengers to the inhabitants of Kareth Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up, take it up to you. Please be seated. Sorry, some of you all know that I don't see very well. I'm just struggling, especially today. I'm not exactly sure. I'm just going to make the text bigger. Okay, so um, so you hear that the ark comes to Beth Shemesh, and it's actually a Levitical city. Which, if you know, the Levites are the priestly city, but there's almost like. Um, uh, you know, if you get beyond the fact that the cows have just like, they're, they're lowing as they go. They're like not too happy about the fact that they've left their calves, but they literally make a beeline for Israel, which is kind of divine providence. It's not too good for them because as soon as they show up, they become a sacrifice for um, the Israelites as they um, come up. But it's not even an appropriate burnt offering, an offering for sin, which the Lord has commanded. You're not supposed to you're not supposed to sacrifice cows. So they're not doing it correctly. Nothing that they do is actually correctly done. 
And then what else do they do? They actually, some, like 70 men die because they, they look inside of it. And put out of your mind anything in terms of, of uh, the first Indiana Jones movie as to what happens to them. That's not what happens because they open up the Ark of the Covenant. The point is, is that not only are they not supposed to look at the Ark of the Covenant, that's, that's not even supposed to be done. It's, it's a sign that they are so far from the Lord that even the Levites don't know how to handle holy things properly. The Ark of the Covenant was within the Holy of Holies. It's been used as kind of an instrument of war, so to speak, and now it comes in. It's been under Philistine captivity, and it comes to Beth Shemesh. They think they're happy about it, but they're, they're so far from following the Lord in, in, terms of, in, in terms of, you know, just understanding what he's commanded in his word that they don't even know how to handle these things. And so they call to another town, and they're like, hey, will you take this off our hands? Which is, which is kind of strange, because they've lost a lot of people who have died from this. It doesn't occur to them, but maybe they ought to, like, repent and think about, like, well, why is this happening to us? They just say, well, I, we can't stand the holiness of God. Let's just drive to have somebody else take God's holiness off our hands, so to speak. It's kind of a, a strange response to this. So now we come to our first bullet point here in terms of remorse, in terms of what happens to the people of God. And it's actually part of, part of um, Samuel's ministry here in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and brought to the house of brought it brought it to the house of, of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. From the day that the Ark was lodged at Kirith Jiriam, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel more lamented after the Lord. Now this is an interesting thing. This, that, that normally, if you look in, in terms of where the tabernacle was before, this is before the temple was built. The tabernacle was a kind of a, a tent that traveled with them in the wilderness. And when they finally got into the Holy Land, the tent was set in Shiloh, was where the normal um, worship place was. But it appears that maybe Shiloh was destroyed. And so now, instead of going back to Shiloh, the ark ends up in this other place, and they consecrate somebody to guard it. And then we hear about this 20-year period in which the, the Israelites are mourning after the Lord. Now, I think what's ap- actually happening here, um, at least this is what, you know, in terms of some commentators have pointed out, is that it's probably part of Samuel's ministry where he's, you know, he, remember Samuel exist, was was relatively young prior to this, but I don't think he was just sitting around for 20 years. I think that he might have been on a circuit bringing to remembrance and and mindfulness of the fact that he's preparing them for what's about to happen because because the, the response to when calamity happens isn't to look for some sort of program out of it. If there's a problem with the um, with Israel right now, the problem that they're going to get themselves out of is not to come up with some sort of plan to say, we're in a bad spot. What are we going to do in terms of the fact that the Philistines are more mighty than us? What kind of 
tax code are we going to put in? What kind of jobs program? What kind of like uh, metallurgy program are we going to come up with so that we can train ourselves to make better weapons? Because the Philistines, actually that was one of the issues. The Philistines were really good at iron making and they, they made it so that the Israelites couldn't make uh, anything and you had to go to Philistines even to get plowshares or sharpened and things like that. So they had a technological and military advantage, which is why even though they were they had come in and um, uh, after the Canaanites, they were able to establish kind of a beachhead in Israel and sort of be a thorn in the side for you know centuries within um, Israel. But anyway, the point is is that the Israelite solution isn't going to be to kind of grow out of the problem or to mature out of the problem. The problem is they need to learn to mourn for their sin. The problem that they have is that they've treated the Lord like a talisman, like an instrument to go in with, with battle. They're going to say, it will save us, this box God in a box. This is exactly what, this is how the Philistines react to it when they see it. They're like, oh no, there's a God in the camp because they see an object. Instead of thinking that God will save us, the only way that God is going to save them is that they learn to mourn for their sin because God is the kind of person who as people are turning from their sin, mourning in their predicament that their sin has provided, that they turn to God and they need to learn to mourn for their sin rather than looking for ways to climb out... To, to use their, boot, their bootstraps to pull them out of the situation they're in. So they need to learn to mourn and then to move to a place in verse, um, continuing in verse three, where he says, and Samuel said to all the men of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashereth from among you and, draw, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord in and fasted on, on that day and said, and, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a, so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel, um, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were, they were um, defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Now, 
What's amazing here is that now they've come and Samuel is here and he says, look, the solution to your problem is you need to turn away from your foreign gods and serve the Lord only, which to our ears, and we need to be careful, seems like a, well, no, duh. I mean, like, what else are you going to do? Why, what, what are they doing worshiping foreign gods? Now, James says that worldliness is idolatry, so let's not pretend like we are we, we, we see like uh, idolatry as something that can never happen to us. The, they had like physical objects and other things that they could do to be more um, specific about their idolatry, but the human heart is very similar in terms of the way it acts. It just different, it just gloms on to different kinds of things. In their case, it was very convenient that the way that you could kind of, you, you know, you could not only get um, better crops, but it also functioned as a brothel. So it was a great way to worship back then. You could get everything you needed out of the bales, you, like f- entertainment and, and, and economic success through that kind of worship. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll worship Yahweh, but this, this kind of stuff provides economic and other pleasurable benefits to worship this way. And so, um, so Samuel is teaching the people, and again, we, we, and we understand this is a time before there's a king in the land, and there's, there's a lot more idolatry, but there's this sense in which people are, are turning to their own ways, and they're worshiping according to the ways around them. They're following into the cultural practices of the people around them, the religious practices and everything else, and he's saying, you need to make a hard break from these and we think, well, yeah, of course, I'm just going to get rid of the idols. But there's, there's risk. There's all sorts of, um, there's loss in this process. They know they're going to have to give up things, but they commit to it. And as, they're, as, they're, as they join with Samuel in an assembly to, um, to, to worship God and to repent before him and saying, we're coming to you to repent because we know that the reason why um, we're miserable has to do with our sin and we're turning again that you will be our only God. The Philistines hear about this because the Philistines always hear and the Philistines always know. And they show up and they're going to basically say, hey, no assemblies here, we're going to attack them. Now, what did the Israelites do before? They said, we'll, we'll bring this furniture and that'll do its fighting. Here they say to Samuel, they cry out and say, cry, uh, intercede for us, pray for us before the Lord to deliver us. They call upon Yahweh, their God, to deliver them because they know that he's the only one that can do it. Literally a force is bearing down upon them and instead of, instead of forming lines, they turn to, to Samuel and he offers a burnt offering. He offers a sacrifice of sin to say, we're sinners, we need, we need something to make us, to, to put away our sin before a holy God. And as, as this sacrifice is coming and the Philistines are coming, then God basically, basically shouts with thunder from the sky and throws the Philistines into confusion. And I don't know exactly what happened, but it must have been pretty terrifying. In fact, one of the things, too, is that the, the, the Canaanite god was the god of thunder. You think about these kinds of things. Every, a lot, it's not just the Norse people that worship the god of thunder. A lot of people have through human history. But the point is, is that it, 
it shows that God's in charge of this and it just basically throws in the confusion. And then God who has done all the work for them, then the people of Israel rush out and they defeat the Philistines and drive them out from them as God has delivered them as he promised he would in his word before that if you remain true to me, I will go before you in the battle. I will make sure you never lose a battle. And the people are learning this afresh for the first time because they've turned away from their sin, and they've turned afresh to the God who will deliver them. And that's the kind of God that we have. I'm just trying to find where we are now. Sorry. So then we continue in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set up between Mizbah and Shen and called the name Ebenezer. For the men said, Till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines, so the Philistines were, subdu- were subdued and did not again enter that, the territory of Israel. And the land of the Lord, I'm sorry, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel all in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So now that God has delivered them, what, what Samuel does is he sets up a remembrance for them, and he calls the place there, help me out, I don't know why I just blanked on that. Ebenezer. I don't know why I just couldn't remember that. Now, what's remarkable about this is this 20 years earlier is the place where the Israelites were defeated before the Philistines. So there's a little bit of irony here that it was called the Lord delivers back when they got their, um, well, they, they, they lost, when they lost before the Philistines. And so now he sets a memorial stone to say, we're going to set a marker here and call this place Ebenezer because thus far has the Lord delivered us and we're gonna remember this. We're gonna set a marker to remember the Lord's goodness. Now, what, what's remarkable about the way that this remembrance is, is it's not just like we're gonna remember this day, but thus far has the Lord delivers us. And you think about all the ways in which the, the scriptures recount the times, markers, as it were, with stones to say, we're going to remember that we came out of Egypt. We're gonna, we crossed the Jordan here. We're going to set up stones here. We came into the promised land. We're going to set up stones here. The Lord delivers us here. Thus far as the Lord delivers us. And the Lord, not only in this battle, but also in the fact in between that time when they were so 
um, dumb and blind, the Lord delivered them by opening up their eyes and causing them to repent, that he afflicted them in his mercy so that they might repent and turn to him. And this deliverance was preceded by the fact that he brought them out of blindness and death to life and to be able to hear the word of God, to be able to see his goodness, to turn from their sin. Thus far has the Lord delivered us. It's appropriate that the people of God set up these remembrances because we're prone to, in the middle of things, when things are going on, we need to know, we need to remember that God is good to his people. We need to remember the times of grace that have occurred in our lives because not only are we prone to forget, but we also need, um, we also very much need a, um, a kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? We need to, ha- to have that kind of um, comfort for the times when it feels like God is distant. Now, Leonard was, um, Leonard, you, you may not remember this, but at the last, um, uh, at the, the December 24th, the Christmas Eve service, Leonard um, used Psalm 77, which he had preached on before. And the point that he made, which I thought was very profound at the time, is that in our lives, we can have um, we can have a lot of really kind of I'm trying to look at we we can have t- times of darkness where it feels like the memories that we have, which are good, are are not are are just of things that have passed. Like in the, in the Bailey's case, the death of Alona, they have the memory, but they don't have her currently. So sometimes it's like, well, well, all I ever have is the memory of somebody who is left behind that I no longer who has died that I no longer have with me I can no longer talk to her I can no longer talk to him in Lorena's case I I only have is all I have is the memory but then the the psalmist recounts the good deeds of the Lord in order to remember that the Lord is good because as the Lord has been good in the past, so as will he be in the future. So as I'm sitting in the midst of darkness right now where it feels like everything is not going so well and I've got to maybe get on the threshold of a new year where it feels like I'm in a, a new cycle where is this, gonna, is, 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 is this new year going to be as dark as the last? I know that God is going to deliver me somehow from this because he's the kind of God that cares for his people, that even in the midst of my, my, my darkness, he's going to deliver me. Even in the midst of my sin at times, God is going to deliver me. He's going to help return me to him. He's, he's a good God. And it's important that we set up these remembrances. I was, um, I, the, one of the commentators I'd love to read is Dale Ralph Davis. When he was dating, he would um, chew gum and he, because he, he thought he had bad breath or maybe he does have bad breath. I don't know. But he would like give half of his gum to his, his um, then uh, girlfriend before he got married and she ended up saving all those half sticks of gum and sticking them on like a board and putting a date on them. And so they were like her little stones of remembrance because like when gum gets hard, it's like little stones. But she had like all these sheets and had all these things. And I thought that was kind of funny because, well, I like gum too. I, Sonia and I used to share gum together. Oh, we, we eat, I never broke a piece in half because who can eat half a piece of gum? But we like, but anyway, um, and, and I, it was funny because I was just thinking about the time that I was in OIF and I had all these MRI boxes and I was writing on one a day and sending them off to Sonia. And she has those somewhere and those are like little remembrances of a time when 
I would write to her all the time when we were apart from each other. And so these things are important, not only in relationships, but also in terms of what God does for his people to remind them. And so we need that because um, we're in a time between um, God's, um, we, we still have to be reminded of these things because what ends up happening is that we have to live now between the time of remembrance and anticipation. We're in that time between remembrance of what God has done and anticipation sometimes of what he's about to do. And that's hard to live with because we, we are in, that, in those times at times when we need to know that what's going to happen is going to work out. And it, it kind of, it, it caused me to remember something I heard recently. And in order to do that, I need to set that up by reading 1 Thessalonians verse four, um, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. In closing, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are, who are, left, <coughs> who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, <coughs> excuse me, with a cry of command, with the voice of an arch- archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead of Christ will rise. Then we who are arise, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will all always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out, which um, the verse 16 talks about the cry of a command, it's actually a shout, that the Lord himself will come with a shout. And it reminded me of that because that's exactly what the Lord did to the Philistines. He shouted, with thunder at the Philistines. In this case, there's going to be a shout at the Lord's return. And the um, there's a book I just read on uh, a commentary in Revelation where it recounts this um, class in Uganda, this the, the uh, Bible school in Uganda, and the the professor was talking to these Ugandan uh, students. And these, that if you know anything about the history of that. That country, it's been. It was there was a there was a leader there who had tortured a number of people, caused all sorts of atrocities there, and so there were many of the students there missing eyes, uh, missing ears, just had horrible scars that had had the worst possible things that could be happened to them. In addition to losing loved ones um, beyond reckoning and beyond all sense of ability to mourn or to to have hope for the future, and so. He asked them the question, what is the Lord going to shout? And then one, excuse me, one of the students said, I think he's going to shout, enough! 
That's what the Lord's going to shout. I thought, well, maybe it's something else, but that's, that could be it. That's what this, this student who knew what it was like to suffer figured that the Lord was going to shout was enough. I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard, I've heard, the, I've heard the pleas that you would come again. I've heard the pleas for that, that the sins of your enemies would be judged. I, it's time for your deliverance. Enough. Because that's exactly what the people of God are promised, is that there will be a time in which there's enough, in which God, ha- his patience has come to an end, and, and, the, and the, 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 the people of God's desire that he would return and deliver them from sin and suffering will be over, and Christ will return. God hears, he knows, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And there's this great comfort to know that as we're remembering the ways in which God has saved us in the past, we know and we're to be encouraged, as Paul says, to look to the future certainty, saying, based on what I know of the way that God is so consistently good to his people, has been proven over and over again, even in my own life, the times of grace that I'm storing up in remembrance stones, all the different things that he's done that are good to me. I can get through the dark times. I can manage through those. I will continue to repent to him because what, what is there? What, what can I find in my idolatry? What can I find in my sin that's going to comfort me against the darkness and the things that are going on in, my, in, in life? And I, I don't want to neglect the things that are good. We're still rejoicing over the many things that are happening that are good, but Everything that we, we have is tinged with a little bit of sadness and the loss of loved ones, even as we're rejoicing over the things that are continue to happen among us. And then we look ahead and we go that because we know that God is consistent and true, we have the hope of the resurrection and the return of Christ that everything will be set right. And this is how we're to encourage one another, even as we enter into a new, a new year. Now, I have to admit, and this is kind of a sinful admission, that I don't like, I don't like seeing anything Christmassy after Christmas. It's just like, it, I don't know what it is, but I look forward to the Christmas season. Like, when it's here, it's like, it's great, and then it's soon it's over. It's like, man, I got to get back to work, all this other stuff. New Year's for me is kind of like really depressing. And like, I, I don't like the New Year because then it means back to things. And that's because I live so much in the moment. And I think that what what I want you to remember and what I want me to remember today is I want to enter the new year remembering as the Lord has been good to me, he will continue to be good to me. As he's been good to us, he will continue to be good to us. As I remember the, as I remember the stones of remembrance, the things that he's been uh, done well to us, it'll remind me that yes, as I repent and turn in faith to God, this is the kind of God that I serve, that he's gracious to sinners, that he's united sinners to himself, that he saved him, and that ultimately all the suffering, all the sorrow that we have together as a congregation, all the sorrow that we have in our lives as we lose loved ones, as we see things that 
um, as we see our own bodies um, decaying and things like that, that we know, we look forward to God coming and vindicating us, coming in Christ to say enough and to, to, to deliver us from all this. And so we have this ability now between the poles of remembrance and anticipation to, to go forward in joy, to know that all things are going to work um, well according to God. And, you know, this to, to close with that as um, this, this commentator was reflecting, uh, Ralph Davis again, he said that even during the Lord's Supper, he said that maybe in an addition to do this in remembrance of me, one of the things that we should say during the Lord's um, Supper is, thus has the Lord done to us so far. It's that same idea that we're living even in the Lord's Supper and everything we do, every time we worship, so far has the Lord delivered us and he will continue to deliver us. He's been good to us. He continues to be good to us and we we can take that to the bank as we remember that and we live our lives in faith before a God who cares for us and loves us. Let's pray.